It's good to be with all of you. I love Wednesday nights. Anybody go to either the Fresno Franklin Graham event or the Bakersfield one? Anybody? Yeah? They're pretty cool. They packed it out at Bakersfield, I guess, 10,000 people. Uh, And, uh, yeah, it's just neat. Neat for people to come out and hear the gospel preached and pray for our communities and just good stuff. Join me, please. Make your way over to 1 Timothy chapter 3 if you have a Bible or a device with a Bible app on it. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Last week we started a series that we're calling Faithful Sayings. And what they are is a list of five important truths that the Apostle Paul shared with Timothy and Titus and with us by extension at the end of his life and his ministry. These are the last letters that he wrote. These are his sons in the faith. He was handing off the ministry to them in full and had a few closing thoughts for them. And we'll see that each time in each of these studies that he says, this is a faithful saying, and then gives uh, some topic, some principle, some truth for them. Perhaps your translation uses the word uh, trustworthy. This is a trustworthy saying. Same thing. And what that is telling us is that these are not just good principles, right? They're not just uh, timely or concise or, hey, that's a great turn of phrase. No, they're not just good principles. They are the kinds of truths that you can rely on as a person who is following after God. We can hang the weight of our lives on these things like a mountain climber securing himself with a carabiner. Uh, That's what Paul means when he says faithful saying. Now last time we saw that Paul started his list of five faithful sayings with the very best news of all, that Christ came to save sinners. And it's fitting then that the second saying on the list has to do with a person's response to this saving God. Uh, how our response starts in the heart, but then makes its way out through the hands in real recognizable action and service. What do you want to be when you grow up? I'm sure all of us have at some point or another either been asked this question or have asked this question. I asked my little three-year-old today. I got quite a list. Uh, uh, piano player, princess, balleter. Moana. I mean, there was just a long list of things that I said, sure, honey, go for it. Uh, but I'm sure uh, all of us have heard or given some comical answers ourselves. One of my friends famously said, I want to be a trash man when I grow up. And hey, that's great. I love my trash man. What would we do without trash men? Are there any trash men here today? If there are, God bless you. We're <laughs> happy for you. Happy for the work that you do. But generally speaking, research shows that in elementary school, kids respond in ways that are a bit more fantasy than reality. That's why we ask them, because it's fun. Uh, and when I say fantasy, I don't mean they you know, want to be wizards or unicorns, although some probably say that. But fantasy in, the, in, the, in that, the statistical probability of their becoming what they say they want to become is really, really low. Right, two of the biggest, two of the ones at the very top of the elementary school list are astronaut and professional athlete. Right, uh, but your odds of becoming an astronaut are about point zero zero one percent. That's your chance. Okay, your odds of becoming a professional athlete. I want to. I want to speak this to all the parents out there right now who have their kids in sports. I just want to let you know, the odds of your kid becoming a professional athlete is 0.0003%. Okay, so so we can just maybe ease up a little bit when we're out there on the Cal Ripken field. Now, by middle school, 
the answers to what do you want to be when you grow up start becoming a little bit more realistic, albeit less glamorous. At that point, more, more kids are choosing, choosing scientists, for example. And then by high school, astronaut is gone from the list. Nobody wants to be an astronaut anymore, I guess. Pro athlete sort of hangs on, but it's at the bottom of the list. And in their places are answers that are generally more practical, realistic, and attainable. Uh, what do you want to be in God's household? You know, what do you want to be when you grow up in your faith is one way of asking it. I think that's a question Paul would like us to think through this evening. Just like we sort of expect every little child to have an answer to the question, what do you want to be when you grow up, even if the answer is silly or fanciful or statistically improbable, we expect they'll have something in mind. We expect they'll have an answer that they have thought about it or that they have some desire that they are going to express through their answer. Well, what do you want to be in God's household? All the more we as Christians who understand what God has done for us and what God has provided for us and how he wants to include us in his work and in what we call his economy or his kingdom and you know his household, all of his will and his ministry and all of that, we should have an answer to that spiritual question. What do you want to be when you grow up in your faith? Or what do you want to be in God's household? What kind of work do you want to do for your king? Now, the Apostle Paul assumed that all of us would be regularly serving God in some capacity, that we would be active members in the body of Christ. He didn't assume that, you know, any Christian would be that uh, dead, limp, gangrene finger that's just kind of hanging on. Yeah, I, don't, I haven't had feeling in that thing for a long time. That, that was foreign to Paul's way of thinking. He said in Romans 12 that it is our reasonable service, our normal, natural uh, activity to come and present our whole lives to God as an offering for his glory. Now in 1 Timothy 3 verse 1, Paul gives instruction and insight into what it means to serve God and how it should be done. Now when we read this passage, you might find yourself thinking, well, Paul's really just talking about a particular office in the church. He's talking about a specific you know, job in, in the Lord's will, that of a pastor. And it's true. The immediate context is Paul's instruction for appointing elders to oversee local churches. That This is, after all, a pastoral epistle. And admittedly, most of the people in the room tonight are not going to occupy that office. For one thing, the New Testament restricts that office to men, and then it's restricted tighter than that, as Paul gives different requirements and those sorts of things. And by the way, those who are pastors are also given unique warnings by God that need to be taken very seriously. But if anybody comes to this passage and we sort of find ourselves thinking, well, you know, I'm not going to be a pastor, so there's nothing really here for me. I'll just skip over this. It's kind of like those long lists in the book of Numbers. Paul would encourage us to pull back on that thought for a moment, because even if we're not all called to be pastors, every one of us is called to be a servant in the Lord's household. Every one of us is called to be an active member of Christ's body. We are all priests on the earth, consecrated for the Lord's purposes. And so when Paul gives us trustworthy principles for servants and service, they benefit all of us, even if he's just using the immediate example of a particular office. And so tonight, the principles of how Paul looks at serving the Lord, responding to what God has done for us, those principles come to us in sort of three parts. Number one, our love's condition. Number two, our life's qualification. And number three, our Lord's calling. So let's look at our text, 1 Timothy 3.1, and we'll first consider our love's condition. 
Paul says, this is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A little clarification might help us here at the outset. I'm reading out of the New King James Version, which uses that word bishop. Uh, If you have an ESV or an NIV, you'll see the word overseer. New Living renders it simply as church leader. Now, when I hear the word bishop, I generally think of that term in the way it's most often used today. Uh, at, you know, someone with sort of a higher level authority over multiple congregations in particular groups, right? I think of, if I'm honest, big pointy hats and sort of regional leadership, uh, not not the kind of local pastor um, that we think of a pastor. But the New Testament, when it uses this term bishop, it doesn't have in mind a guy overseeing a large region with a pointy hat. Uh, when the New Testament uses this term, he's talking about a man desiring the position of what we would call an elder or a pastor of a local church. An elder pastor, we see in the epistles that those terms are used somewhat interchangeably in the New Testament. It was a position of leadership, but it was never meant to be one where these men lorded over people. In fact, the Bible condemns that kind of activity. Rather, the office of bishop is one of service and care, and Paul hints at this in his use of the word work there at the end of the verse. It's a good work. But it is a task to be carried out for the Lord. And we are to assume that the man seeking this position, uh, this position of service in the church, is doing so out of holy motives, not out of selfish ambition. Uh, We know that because earlier in the letter, Paul has already denounced those who sought to be in a position of leadership so they can lord over others or take advantage of people uh, through their office. And so uh, Paul is speaking sort of hypothetically here, or he's speaking generally uh, and principally, um, but it assumes that you have a man who is seeking to serve God from the right position and from the right motives in his heart, not to lord over people, but to serve the Lord by serving them. Now, Paul says that the desire or to desire to do this good work is a good thing. And before he discusses what kinds of things this hypothetical man does, we should notice that he describes what kind of man he is. What's his heart? What's his, the condition of his love for the Lord? In other words, before the technical, Paul gives us the personal. He doesn't start off with, hey, when you're appointing church leaders... Here are the following qualifications. He's going to get to the qualifications, but he starts with the heart. He says, let me tell you what kind of man this guy is in his heart. And before he starts listing out who, what makes a person or a man eligible for the job, he describes what sort of person he will be inwardly. And Paul does so by saying he'll be a man who desires to do this work. He's not... Uh, throwing his hat into the ring, or he's not seeking this position out of any sort of obligation. It's not a matter of selfish ambition. It's a matter of personal love and devotion to the Lord. It's response to his Savior. And then he says, okay, well, I want to serve the Lord, and I want to serve other people. I want to tell other people about the Lord and about his gospel. Now, this principle that we're seeing Paul direct toward the office of the bishop in the church, the principle of looking at the inward first is certainly not limited to one single position in the church, right? When we're talking about serving the Lord in any capacity, God's always first interested in the condition of the heart, the condition of the love. 
that's the starting point for any area of service, any type of ministry, any effort for Jesus Christ. And Paul's order here of first describing the inward desire and then giving the qualifications reminds us that when it comes to spiritual things, God always wants the heart before the hand. Always. He always does. He's not looking for labor without love. Don't bother with the rituals uh, or the busy work. Jesus said that outright, right? He said, if your hearts are far from me, don't give me lip service. Don't, Don't give me busy work. Don't give me empty rituals. He says, I want your heart. That's what he's after. Because as Proverbs explains, everything we do flows from the heart. And so Christ wants your heart primarily. And from the heart then flows out everything else. Now, when we read the verse, we just see the word desires twice, right? In the English, he says, if a man desires the position, he desires a good work. Okay, so we're given one word twice. But Paul actually uses two different terms in order to fully describe what he means. One of the words he uses means an intense emotional longing for something. And then the other word he uses means not just to aspire to something, but to exert much energy to try to get it. To yearn for something, to stretch out your hand and try to get hold of it. And so Paul here is describing a person who is not only wanting, but is actively pursuing Someone who is passionate about serving God, but doesn't just daydream about it. Someone who looks for ways to actively be involved in the service of the Lord. Looking for opportunities, looking for chances, stretching out their hand and saying, Hey, maybe I could serve God in this way. Maybe I could do this. Maybe I could glorify the Lord in this way. Not just always thinking, well, I want to serve God. But pairing that passion with pursuit. That's the description that Paul brings to us. And Paul's description here begs the question, do I want to serve the Lord? What's the condition of my love for Jesus? You know, it's possible for even born-again Christians to be somewhat unresponsive to the Lord at times. Of course, as Christians, we know that the Lord didn't just do one thing for us. It's not just that he's like, hey, I exchanged your ticket that was sending you to hell for a ticket to heaven. I'll see you on the other side. We know that the Lord is, is daily ministering to us daily pouring out his grace and mercy to us. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us all the time. The Spirit is ministering to us. I mean, we know that the Lord is busy reaching out to us, working in us, accomplishing his will in us, working together all things for the good, right? We know that, but it is possible for us to sort of slip into a callousness toward that knowledge and to become somewhat unresponsive. You know, we intellectually recognize what God has done and what he's still doing, and we're happy about it, but sometimes the response of our heart sort of stalls there and, and doesn't, doesn't react to what the Lord is doing. And we remember what happened when Jesus healed the ten lepers, for example, there in Luke 17. All ten were cleansed. They were all given new life, saved by God's compassionate grace, And Jesus was accessible to them. He was right there. But what happened? Only one came back to give thanks to the Lord and to honor him. And what did Jesus ask? He said, hey, where are the nine? Weren't there nine? Weren't there ten that were cleansed? And he said, were there not any found who returned to give glory to God? And so we want to have responsive hearts. 
Hearts that are tender to what God is doing in and around our lives. Hearts that are recognizing how gracious the Lord is to us. And then hearts that respond. Hearts that uh, return to give glory to God. And we know from the rest of the New Testament that the way that we give glory to God is not only through thanksgiving, not only through the attitude of our heart, not only through the worship and the praise of our lips, but also through the activity of our lives. Paul said, hey, your reasonable service to glorify God is to present yourself as a living sacrifice. We talked a lot about this on Sunday morning in our studies through Exodus, about putting our whole lives on the altar all of the time. And so uh, that is how we return to give glory to God, by having responsive hearts. How should we respond? With thanks to be sure, uh, but also with the kind of desire that Paul is describing here in this hypothetical situation. An active desire that is earnest and that is passionate, right? That really, really wants, but then also a desire that puts pursuit to that passion and seeks for opportunities and reaches out to try to lay hold of the object of that desire. Richard Branson, the famous billionaire entrepreneur, was once talking about the many things he did to promote his company as a young man. He was always, you know, staging all kinds of stunts and things like that. That's why, you know, that's why he's one of the billionaires we actually know who he is. You know, there's a lot of billionaires and we only know a couple of them. The crazy ones, right? Richard Branson, Elon Musk. Bill Gates isn't crazy, but, you know. So, but we all know about Richard Branson, not because we all own so many records or all because we fly Virgin Atlantic all the time. I've never been on his airline. We know about him because of the stunts that he uh, has performed for many, many years in service to his company. Uh, But he was talking about the many things he did to promote his company. And he said this, he said, if you go back to when I was 15 or 16, I didn't have any money. And if you're going to take on British Airways, if you're going to take on the big record companies, I had to use myself to promote what I believed in. I didn't have the money to market it. So in order to get on the front pages rather than the back pages of the newspapers, I would do anything I could to get on the map, even if it meant jumping in boats or balloons or trying to break world records, etc. So in his worldly example, I'm not saying we want to Emulate him, uh, you know, as a model of spirituality. But in his worldly example, his passion was met with pursuit. He had this passion for his company and the ideas that he had. He said, "Okay, but I have to go out and do something in order to, uh, you know, respond to what I believe in, as it were." And so we, after we ask ourselves the question, "Okay, do I want to serve the Lord? Do I have a desire to glorify God through my life?" Well, then the companion question is this: Am I trying? to serve the Lord. We understand the difference, right? For example, most of us at one time or another have thought to ourselves, you know, I want to lose some weight. Okay, well then the natural follow-up is then, is, are these questions, right? okay, are we exercising? Are we watching what we eat? Are we making any effort at all? If the answer to all of those is no, well then you have to conclude that well, I don't really want to lose weight all that badly, right? We understand that, but we need to realize that It's one thing to have a sort of mental desire, a heart desire, a passion. Yeah, I want to glorify God. Okay, Paul says that we meet that passion with the kind of desire that pursues and that reaches out to do what we say we want to do. And so we've checked our hearts. Okay, Lord, I want to serve you. Now what? Well, after discussing our love's condition, we can think about our life's qualifications. Because just wanting it wasn't all that was required, at least for a man to become a bishop in the church. 
And that carries through to other service in God's house as well. After the proper heart is described, Paul goes on in this chapter to list real, observable qualifications. Okay, you have somebody who wants to serve God in this way. Okay, well, here are the qualifications. Here are the prerequisites that need to describe this person. And they're observable. They're things that anybody could look at their life and say, okay, that's true. Yeah, that he's not doing, you know. They were real, observable, tangible things. For a man to be considered eligible for the position of bishop, certain things needed to be true about how he lived his life. And this principle of real life examination or qualification isn't just for elders in the church. The apostle immediately then goes on to do the same thing for deacons in the church, a different position in the church. In the other epistles, we're given instruction on how we are to live if we want to be proper husbands or proper wives or parents or employees. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus is describing the kind of life a Christian will lead if they're faithfully following after him. And so this idea of life's qualifications is by no means limited to the one office of bishop in the church. The specifics of the list in 1 Timothy 3 are unique to bishops, right? Sure, that's the immediate context. But on a greater level, we're all called to walk worthy of our calling, right? And we're told that all over the New Testament. We are to walk worthy of our calling. We are to walk worthy of our Lord. That means obeying his commandments. That means following after him properly. So if we say it simply... It's great when a person wants to serve the Lord and be used for his glory, but in the meantime, are they living out the Christian life? You know, we know what the Christian life is. It's explained for us in the New Testament in great detail, right? And we're not trying to judge people, but it's pretty obvious what the Lord asks of Christians, He says, hey, here's how I want you to live. Here's how I want you to conduct yourself. Here's how I want you to treat people. Here's how I want you to treat people you know, people you don't know. Here's how I want you to talk about me. Here's how I want you to show love. I mean, there are a lot of concrete, visible, observable things that the Lord says, this is what I want for all of us, all of my people to be doing. And so... uh, Are we living out the Christian life? Are we obeying what God has commanded through the scripture? Are our lives qualified in the sense, are we walking worthy? I want to glorify God. I want to serve God. Great. God's excited about that. But are you walking worthy in the meantime so that you're in proper position so that the Lord can use you? That's what Paul would ask us. For me, Moses is always a good object lesson at this point. He's there out in the desert, right? He goes to the burning bush, gets called by God, finally gets, you know, his heart in proper obedient position. He says, okay, I'm going to go. He's headed towards Egypt, become the deliverer. But guess what? In his personal life, he's in violation of the covenant God made with Abraham. He hadn't circumcised his son, his son Gershom. And so the Lord shows up there in the desert. He says, hey, we just can't have this. You, you, I'm not just going to let this slide. You're in open defiance of the covenant that I've made between myself and Abraham and, and Abraham's descendants. And so I'm going to kill your son because this matters. The way you live your life and the way that you obey or not obey actually matters. It matters more than if you're the big important deliverer. We're, we're going to do this right now. And luckily Zipporah, his wife, intervenes, circumcises her son and his life is spared. But one of the things we learn from that incident is that 
is that as important as our calling might be to minister for the Lord, as significant as our service to God is, it isn't more important than our personal obedience to our King. He cares about that. Because the rocks can cry out if he needs them to. What he cares about is your heart and my heart and that we are in proper relationship with him, that we are following after him, uh, and that we are uh, obeying him. So in thinking through this faithful saying, the first thing is our love's condition, the second is our life's qualification, and then the third is our Lord's calling. God has a lot, lot, lot of different jobs for his people to do. Uh, Some of those jobs seem more mundane or more exciting from our point of view. But in God's eyes, they're all valuable. Everything that we do in service to the Lord has value and has significance as far as God is concerned. You know, the widow's mites are valuable. And Zacchaeus' great giving and retribution is also valuable. God is not a respecter of persons. He doesn't love the servant to whom he gave five talents more than the servant to whom he gave two talents or one talent. He loves them all. And all of their service to him is equally valuable. It's his business who he gives what and what he asks each one to do. And on top of that, the New Testament shows that being eligible to be a bishop, for example, does not guarantee entry into that position. Right? So Paul is talking about here a specific office, giving us some sort of greater principles of what it means to serve the Lord and our heart's orientation to all of that. But he says, hey, look, if, if there's somebody who wants to be a, a bishop in the church, great, that's a good thing. Here are the qualifications. But even if the person was qualified, even if the man was qualified, that doesn't mean he was guaranteed a bishopry. That doesn't mean, okay, well, you're a pastor now because you filled out this form and so we guarantee you a spot. Sometimes these college programs, um, you know, you'll, you'll go through a program and as part of the program they say, we'll guarantee you a position somewhere. We'll guarantee you a job in that field. If you go through and jump through these hoops and if you, you know, meet all of the criteria and the requirements. But that's not how it works in ministry. Even if a person desired the position and even if the, even if the guy qualified uh, for the position according to Paul's list here, that didn't mean that he was automatically granted entry into that position. The Lord's will is making these determinations. It's not us. When Paul planted churches, he didn't go and have a meeting and say, okay, who wants to do what? Who wants to be a pastor? Oh, you five guys want to be a pastor? Okay, great, you're all pastors. Who wants to do it? Anybody do whatever they want. That's not what happened at all. Uh, Rather, elders were appointed either by Paul himself or by other spirit-led leaders in the church as God directed them. Paul himself said, I was appointed as a preacher and an apostle. He didn't just show up and say, I'm going on missionary journeys. I don't care what anybody else says. There was a, a recognition among the church where it said the, the Holy Spirit separated Paul and Barnabas and the leaders of the church recognized that and said, okay, the Lord has called you guys to do this at this time and then sent them out. He didn't make the decisions himself. He had the desire to serve. He was qualified to do it. But most importantly, he was called by God and that calling was recognized by the believers around him. Sometimes the position we want for ourselves is not the one God has called us to. And you know what? We want to defer to him. We do. We may not feel that way sometimes, but we really do want that. 
The Bible is obviously full of examples of what happens when a person goes their own way instead of the way God wanted them to go. But it's even common sense that we want God to be the one who does the assigning and the calling and the sending. We talked about that earlier I referenced the what do you want to be when you grow up and the research on that. You know, 80% of people do not end up becoming what they thought they wanted to become when they were kids. 80%. Why? Well, we know why. Because kids don't have all the information. They don't have all the information about the world. They don't have all the information about themselves. They just don't have all of the information. And, and so their earlier idea, well, that's not an idea that's going to work out. We understand that from a common sense perspective, but it's also true even to a much greater degree in the spiritual realm. God is the one with all the information. He's the one with the perfect, infinite wisdom, and it's His kingdom we're talking about. And so it's the Lord's calling we should devote ourselves to because sometimes the people we think would be perfect for a particular task or ministry or position is not the person God wants at all. It's happened in the life of Paul a couple of different ways. For one thing, if we had been making the position and sketching it all out on paper, Paul would have been the apostle to the Jews, not the Gentiles. He was the foremost expert on Judaism in the church. He was a genius. He could debate these Pharisees. He had been one of them. He knew the ins and outs. He had all of the connections. He had the pedigree. What does God do? Sends him to the Gentiles. And he becomes the greatest example of Christianity the world has ever seen. Even then, there were times when Paul thought he had the route sort of picked out, not in a carnal way, but he said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to Asia. Holy Spirit said, no, you're not. I forbid you to go to Asia. And Paul said, okay, I'm going to submit to that because you know what, Lord, I want to go where you want me to go, not where I think I should go. Ken Mattingly was an astronaut in the 60s. He was selected and trained to be, in, uh, to be the command module pilot on the Apollo 13 mission. He was a great pilot, logged thousands of hours flying, had a degree in aeronautical engineering. I mean, the guy's a walking home run, right? Three days prior to Apollo 13's launch, he was removed from the mission because the doctors decided he had been exposed to German measles. And he was replaced by a backup pilot at the last minute. This event is dramatized in the 1995 movie Apollo 13. It was a huge disappointment for a man who, from everyone's assessment, was the right man for the command module pilot job. He never even contracted the measles. It was all just a false flag. But when the mission went terribly wrong and they had that explosion uh, on Apollo 13, guess what? Ken Mattingly was involved in helping the crew solve the problem of power conservation during reentry. By not being in the driver's seat, he helped save the lives of his three fellow crewmen, his three fellow astronauts, his friend. I'm sure they're all real thankful that he was kicked out of that seat so that he could be in what became the much more important seat. Because guess what? At the end of the day, at the end of the mission, they didn't need Ken as the pilot. They needed him as the brain sitting at the desk figuring out how to keep those guys alive. And it sort of reminds me of the man Jesus healed there in Luke 8, the demoniac of the gatherings. Jesus cast a legion of demons out of him, and we're told that the man begged Jesus that he might go with him. And Jesus sent him away. He said, no, you can't come with me. But he said, return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. Now this guy was thinking, hey, I want to be a disciple. Can't I be the 13th disciple? I want to go down this road with you. This is a perfect opportunity for me. I'm the man for the job. 
But the Lord had a different calling. And Mark tells us that that man went on a ten-city evangelistic crusade and everyone who heard him marveled. He wouldn't have planned that for himself, but the Lord had a better idea. And so maybe the Lord wants you in a more visible position of leadership in his body, and maybe he doesn't. That's his business. What's more important is that all service to the Lord is great in God's eyes, even the giving of a cup of cold water. That's what Jesus said. If I'm not satisfied with the calling I've been given, well, that reveals something about me, not about the Lord. It exposes what I'm really reaching for. In that case, I'm not reaching out in worshipful response to my Savior. I'm reaching out to take some glory for myself. So here's the faithful truth in God's word. There is a place for every single Christian in the work of God and in the body of Christ. It's a meaningful place, an active place. To desire that place is to desire something good. Paul elsewhere encourages us to earnestly desire the best spiritual gifts so that we might be used for God's glory. As we live out our Christianity, the apostle would have us consider our love's condition? Are we stirring up a passionate pursuit to serve the Lord? Do we want to work in his kingdom? And then are we living lives that are qualified? Are we walking worthy so that we're in position to be used when God wants to use us? And third, are we in line with the Lord's calling? Do we trust him to make the best use of us, even if that use is different than the one we imagined? God can use any of us. He wants to use all of us. Let's stir up our desire, stir up our gifts, and be set loose to glorify him in whatever ways he sees fit. We're going to...